Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Action-packed week to dig into. Boy, it didn't take long. Came, come back in September. The news cycle, the news flow just explodes. Uh, two big stories for us to unpack this week. First, I uh, want to get your views on this growing uh, tension. I don't know how you characterize it. Uh, breakup of... India-Canada relations, it's a complicated issue, lots of moving pieces, but uh, we've got some insights. Let's share them with our listeners. And then second, let's talk about what's happening in Ontario. Another cabinet minister out this morning, Friday, the 22nd, uh, McNaughton, one of the most, I think, respected and thoughtful members of that cabinet, resigning to, quote, take on other opportunities. What the heck is happening to the Ford government? Deal with that in the back half. But let me come to you first, Sean, on the India-Canada bust up over uh, the prime minister's characterization of credible allegations that a Canadian citizen who was in Canada associated with the Khalistani separatist movement in the Punjab region of India was assassinated by Indian security services. We don't know who, uh, we don't know what, but that's the allegation, Sean. A ton of fallout, so many dimensions to this. What in particular has caught your attention? What do you think we should be focusing on? Yeah, yeah, great question. Jonah Goldberg, the American conservative writer, says that uh, conservatism is comfort with contradiction. You know, that is to say multiple things can be right at the same time. And I think that's a good way to think about um, th this story. I mean, first, if these allegations are true and the Indian government directly or through proxies assassinated a Canadian citizen on our soil, it's a big effing deal. Full stop. <laughs> um, it flies in the face of all you know, norms and conventions around um, international law and the um, relationship between democratic states. And so, um, you know, I think we're, we'll need to learn more, but I don't have reason to, to necessarily to doubt or question uh, what the, the prime minister has, has, has alleged. It's also true, however, um, that uh, successive Canadian governments, particularly this one, have turned a, a blind eye uh, to growing concerns around Sikh extremism within our own borders. And, and it's not merely willful neglect. There is some evidence, as you guys know, Rudyard and Stewart, that it has been proactive at times. Uh, listeners may not be familiar with this story, but it's, it's a shocking one. In 2018, um, the Canadian intelligence community produced its annual report on um, terrorist threats and for the first time identified Sikh extremism or Khalistani separatist movements as uh, a potential terrorist threat to Canada. 
there was an extraordinary political backlash uh, from members of the Sikh community. And in April of 2019, so mere months later, um, this, those same intelligence agencies released essentially expunged version of their annual report that said, we apologize uh, for the language we used, et cetera. And the reference to Sikh extremism was uh, deleted. That same day, the, the addendum came out, the prime minister and Harjin Sajjan, uh, a key member of his cabinet, attended a major Sikh event in the city of Vancouver. Um, I, I suspect listeners like me doubt that there was a coincidence. So that's a very long way of saying um, it's a major problem uh, if these allegations are true. Um, but I think hopefully what one of the consequences it draws attention to the Canadian public that um, that this in part reflects a, a failure by Canadian governments to to deal with this kind of growing problem within our within our borders. Mm-hmm. Stuart, what fascinates me is are the parallels to Chinese uh, interference in Canada. It's kind of um, it's not identical, but there's a there's a patterning here, which is intriguing to explore. So on the Chinese file, you have a government that uh, for a set of circumstances, I think partly due to electoral politics in the GTA, um, decides that maybe it's not in its interest to heed the advice of the security services and uh, really push Beijing on interference practices that are ongoing uh, in probably Southern BC mainland also in addition to Toronto. On India, there is uh, warnings from the security services, both the one that Sean just mentioned, but also it seems before the prime minister's first trip to India, there was a a kind of a request by the security services to say, we really want to make a crackdown on, you know, Sikh radicalism as it relates to the Khalistani independence issue a kind of priority for our agencies and the government, you know, take it or leave it for whatever set of circumstances says, whoa, wait a second, we got a trip to India. We need to pour cold water on that idea. The thread that connects these two things are security services in Canada consistently warning the government of threats, threats of Chinese election interference, threats in this case, not of Indian interference per se in Canada, which ultimately maybe did happen and happened in a in a horrible and uh, completely abhorrent way if this assassination is indeed what has taken place at the hands of Indian security agents. In this case, it was the government ignoring the security services because there was another kind of political you know, beehive that they didn't want to punch, which is, you know, half a dozen or more ridings in lower mainland BC, where uh, if there was a crackdown instigated by the security services, that could have big political repercussions. I don't know, Stuart, I put this all together and I just feel like, you know, diaspora politics has gone from, you know, something that one understands and appreciates part of the reality of Canada to almost now an impediment to our national interests and to our national security in terms of the mandates that if any government at any level in Canada, it's the federal government has that mandate to pursue our international standing in the world, manage these important bilateral relationships, China and India, and ensure, you know, domestic, uh, 
basics like the free functioning of our democracy as citizens without interference or the intimidation of groups and communities by you know movements that are filled with some pretty bad actors in them who are trying to fuel and fund violence in an ally that is a fellow democracy. I don't know, Stuart, I put this all together and I, I just, I worry about what we're seeing here and the extent to which, wow, can we somehow pull back or unpeel this, this fixation of our politics and our political leaders on the domestic context and these, you know, specific ethnocultural communities versus the national interest. Yeah, we talked about this a lot when Patrick Brown was running for the conservative leadership. And really all Patrick Brown was doing was just being more obvious about this. Like he was being a little crude about his diaspora politics. And I would encourage people to read. Um, it's rare that I encourage people to read a non-hub piece, but there is a piece in the Globe Mail this morning <laughs> by Omar Aziz, former foreign policy advisor in the government. And he sort of details how they can't actually do anything that doesn't have domestic political payoffs on this stuff and details how glib the government has been about India and vice versa. India has been pretty glib about Canada. Um, I, this is one of those things that you can only see bad outcomes coming from. We can't have a real foreign policy anymore because, you know, certain communities live in swing ridings. And if you look at how quiet the conservatives have been on this, um, that tells you a lot because they want to win those ridings too. Um, I don't think anyone's hands are clean here. And these are real short-term imperatives that I think you just can't base a foreign policy around, you know, four seats in the next election. Let me just jump in there because um, the incentives for this type of blending of foreign policy and domestic politics are only going to grow, right? Um, Statistics Canada estimates that by 2040, something like half of the population will be first or second generation immigrants. Um, and, you know, let me say, um, so I'm clear about this. I, I think our um, our immigration policy is a tremendous success. And I think the, you know, to quote the prime minister, diversity is our strength. I think there's actually something to that. But um, as a, a greater share of the population uh, has these connections to um, parts of, of the world. The risk, of course, is uh, that our politicians double down on this diaspora politics and it comes to um, subordinate the national interest. And I'll turn it over to Rudyard in a second. But not only is that is there that secular trend, which is the kind of transformation of the Canadian population and, and the incentives that inherent in it, but there's also, it must be said, um, the end of the unipolar world and the the kind of relative tranquility of of the post Cold War era. I mean, holy smokes, guys! There is a lot of balls in the air when it comes to present day geopolitics. And I think one of the shocking um, parts of the story this week is you just get the sense we're uh, you know a, on, in a boat on our own and kind of in the middle of of the ocean. Um, and, and you know you put those two things together and it um it's it's concerning it's alarming um for canada and canada's place in in the world yeah i mean what struck me is that right now uh, we have aligned against us russia 
that we share an Arctic with. So there's, there's real security issues there. China, which we know is now viewing us as more than just an irritant. They're, in a sense, actively opposed to our interests. And then India, in some ways, the worst of this trifecta, because India right now has incredible geopolitical leverage as the West's hedge against China, hedge economically, hedge in the security context in Asia. And now India and Canada's uh, relations have ruptured in a, in a substantial way. And this uh, refusal of the Indian government to process visas on behalf of Canadian Indian Canadian dual citizens traveling to India. I mean, this is serious stuff, guys. This is not just, you know, a démarche, as they call it, and you know, a few diplomatic expulsions. <laughs> this is this is worse. Uh, this is worse than you know, just a regular kind of uh, pillow fight uh, between friends. Um, so I look at that, and I I really think that part of this, and and also the, the somewhat less than uh, enthusiastic uh, echoing uh, by the part of our allies. And the United States came out in the last 24 hours and has urged the Indian government to participate in an investigation, but UK quiet, Europe quiet, Australia quiet. In fact, you know, our five eyes allies, our intelligence allies, with the exception of the United States, all really feeling that their bilateral relationship with India, frankly, is more important than their yes. bilateral relationship with, with Canada. And I think we just have to acknowledge that this is the consequence of a serial underinvestment in our defense and security capacity for the last decade. We just don't offer our allies much of anything. Uh, and it was okay maybe for us to be a freeloader and a freebooter, you know, up until this period of you know, uh, geopolitical kind of fracturing where we now have the world dividing off into blocks. But it's just naive, Stuart, I think, for us to think that we can continue to uh, elide these responsibilities around, let's say, meeting our NATO requirement or having uh, 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 the nuclear subs that would allow us to be part of the AUKUS relationship with Australia, the United Kingdom, the US in Asia. We're, we're out of all this stuff. We're, we're missing in action. And now we see the consequences that this incurs, not just with our, our you know, opponents, our potential enemies here. And just to think of India as an enemy of Canada is shocking. It's such a, such a radical about face. But with our allies, they just don't seem, Stuart, like they're all that invested in our security. Yeah, you, we've been feeling that kind of frostiness for a little while now. And I will admit, though, that my visceral reaction to this, like as a Canadian, um, which is probably outside of political commentary, was um, annoyance at our allies where, you know, I think Richard Shimuka laid out all of your case, um, all of the case against Canada in this for not living up to our uh, side of the bargain. But, you know, this is when you expect allies to have your back. And I, I was a little annoyed by the Americans. And in, since then, though, reading about it, you can see some explanations for why they might want to keep their powder dry. And I, I think you're right. The big concerning thing here is that India was part of this geopolitical setup that we were kind of expecting 
that we were moving towards, I think with some chance of maybe hedging against China, um, if that's not going to work out, that's a big problem. And I think that's partly why you see too, these countries are a little bit, they don't want to just pop off right away and, and they're being a little more considered. May, may I just uh, make one point and then I want to bring in Amala Tarkuzman, our uh, podcast producer who uh, is a global affairs graduate and, and follows these issues closely. But the, the other point I wanted to make, um, guys, is I've also, one other issue I've thought about over the past few days um, in relation to this story is about our immigration screening process. You know, we are bringing in, the goal, of course, is to go to half a million immigrants per year. We have a huge backlog uh, of PR applications. One of the ways in which, um, and uh, we also have a backlog, of course, for, for visas. And one of the ways in which government has reduced the backlog is to essentially waive a lot of the eligibility requirements or, or to, you know, it seems to me, risk diminishing the kind of screening process that we apply. I don't know anything about this uh, person who was ultimately killed. Um, and again, let me emphasize, if the Indians were behind it, it's a, it's a big problem, full stop, irrespective of his views or his actions or whatever, um, given that he's a Canadian citizen. But the Indian government believes this guy was a terrorist. We granted him Canadian citizenship in 2007. Um, and so, you know, I, I think one thing that we need to make sure is that as our immigration targets grow, and our ambition around the number of people we're permitting into the country uh, rises. We need to make sure that we're building public uh, uh, social license, so to speak, by ensuring that our system is robust and that the approval process, is, you know, investigates these types of of, of allegations. Um, if there's a growing sense that we're kind of letting people in without doing that type of screening, it's going to, again, be a, a, a contribute to a kind of erosion of public support for our immigration system. Um, but Amal, why don't you weigh in on what, you, what we've been saying? What, uh, what's your reaction to the story? How are you thinking about it? First of all, I'm just going to say, I wasn't necessarily just surprised that this happened, like this unfortunate situation happened, because while diversity is our strength, and it's something that I wholly support, it has been managed well. Diversity can only be our strength if it's managed well. And for, I don't know, for some reason, this government and even past governments, and I even say Western democracies, whether it's the United States, UK, or even Australia or New Zealand, it hasn't been managed well because there's this fear of being seen as racist. So it's very interesting, like how with the security establishment, they're saying like, hey, there is a specific group of Sikh extremism. We should crack down on it. Immediately, there was this whole brouhaha. It was a backlash and they retracted it. And look what happened. Now we're in this entire situation. We haven't been managing well. At the end of the day, if it's not managed well, the ones who are going to be most impacted are diaspora communities, those who are most vulnerable. And I think that instead of being seen as racist, if something is wrong, then we need to do something about it. It's not be, You're not going to be racist if you do something about it. You actually engage with the community. You just need to talk to us. You just need to actually go down to local level say, and ask, hey, what are certain situations, what are certain circumstances you think there might be challenges and actually have a cooperative relationship to deal with that? And I'm not surprised that the UK, Australia and others are not talking on our behalf because why should they? Honestly, why should they? They have their own interest in the matter and they're not going to do anything about it. But there's one thing I really want to bring up and bring in more with domestic issues 
when it comes to separatist movements around the world, we should not forget that Canada itself, we have been dealing with throughout the years, there has been separatist issues, especially with Quebec. I mean, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, Yves-Francois Blanchet, like he went to Spain to talk to Catalan separatists to talk about separatism. Like already that's already happening. And if we don't really take control about certain of separatist sentiments, regardless of the community and how it impacts globally, it can negatively impact us in the long term. Yeah. Thanks, Amal. Great insights. And I think it's a good reminder that you know, the overwhelming vast majority of sea Canadians are here uh, living in Canada peacefully, contributing to their communities, contributing to the country. Mm -hmm. um, what this is about is it's about something that's common in Canadian history going back for a couple centuries now, which is, you know, Irish diaspora groups. Uh, the Fenians, remember those guys <laughs> raiding into the United States? <laughs> you know, we've we've confronted this for a long, long time in this country. So I think we need to be a little bit careful to think somehow that this is new or, you know, this isn't something that, you know, uh, is, isn't a constant in, in Canadian history. Uh, we've gone through it before. It just seems we're not particularly learning the lessons of the past, which is, as Amal said, we've got to help communities uh, identify and suppress bad actors, like really bad, bad people who are doing bad things. And, and it's not just the Sikh community. There are issues now we're seeing allegations possibly of a Vancouver Chinese, uh, you know, uh, immigrant Canadian citizen dissident who may have had his death hastened by intimidation by Chinese, you know, security services. Um, this is a big story. It's not going to go away. We're going to continue to follow it on the hub. When we come back from this break, we're going to talk about what the heck is happening in Ontario to the Ford government. Massive implosion, three ministers out. What over like under two weeks? Um, what's going on? What does this say about this once, uh, yeah, kind of lauded conservative government and premier. Uh, seems like they're on the ropes. Where does this go next? We'll talk about it right after the break. Sign up for the Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, editor at large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. Uh, okay, guys, we're recording today on the 22nd of September. Another cabinet resignation in, uh, in the province of Ontario with the Conservative Governor Doug Ford. McNaughton, uh, arguably one of the most kind of respected and uh, substantive cabinet ministers, major portfolios like labor, 
uh, someone who's really kind of pioneered the Ford government's outreach to working class and uh, skilled trades and traditionally maybe NDP labor voters is leaving, quote, for uh, other opportunities. Sean, what do you make of this, especially the the, the departure of McNaughton? Um, that comes as a real surprise to me. Yeah, yeah. The timing for the government is brutal. <laughs> um, you know, to step back a bit, of course, the government is is reelected uh, with a, a another majority uh, coming out of the pandemic, notwithstanding, you know, I think legitimate criticisms of the way the government uh, handled the pandemic. And I think a general lack of, of coherence in its first term in office. Um, there were big questions about how it was going to expend its political capital. You know, I've written um, that healthcare reform uh you know, ought to be a priority. Others have views about the economy or whatever. Uh, the government has gone and <laughs> exhausted its political capital in this a deal involving uh, opening up the so-called green belt, which of course is a, a protected land in and around uh, uh, the, the greater Toronto area. Um, it just so happens that the land that was uh, freed up was owned by uh, two developers who, and the value uh, immediately skyrocketed. That set off this chain of events that, as you say, uh, Rudyard is involved. Uh, the the resignation of of the responsible minister, uh, another minister just this week, uh, different members of the of the Ford government staff, uh, and then it culminates today with I think an unrelated uh, resignation by Monty McNaughton, um, but one that I think will leave Queens Park reeling. You know, there's so much to be said here, but maybe I'll just um, make this point and then turn it over. Um, to, to, to you guys, I think one of the reasons the Ford government has gotten into trouble on this issue is, um, is something I, I kind of alluded to, which is it, it doesn't have a clear agenda. It, 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 it was reelected. It had a four-year horizon ahead of it. Uh, no uh, Liberal Party leader, the NDP uh, reeling in part because of the success of uh, Monty McNaughton's efforts to build inroads with traditional NDP voters. There, the, there were so many different things the government could do. And day one after the election, the question was, what the hell are they going to do? And the answer is no one really knew, including the premier, I think. Um, and a government that doesn't have a plan, that doesn't have a kind of North Star, um, can end up kind of bumbling along into these different mini crises that, you know, can cumulatively become major crises. And I think that's where we find ourselves now. Uh, uh, and uh, Monty McNaughton's departure... I think only reinforces that this is a government that is rudderless and without people like McNaughton around the table, there's no reason to think it's going to suddenly find its course. Um, it's a big, big deal uh, for this government. And, um, and I think given that it's Canada's biggest province uh, for conservative politics at the provincial level across the country. Mm -hmm. Stuart, total rank speculation here, but you have to wonder, is there, uh, some kind of criminal investigation that's going to be announced because the fact that the premier this week did a 180 on the entire green belt. So he basically said, folks, sorry here, we got it wrong. You know, t -t pulling all this land out of the green belt around Toronto and 
awarding it to uh, these developers who seemed some of them to have this remarkable um, mind reading <laughs> ability to identify the exact plots right, right down to the 20, 50, 100 acre size of the sections that would be pulled out and they happen to be a kind of fundraising dinners with the party and the chief of staff of the then minister of municipal affairs i don't know is there is there some other i, I my instinct says there's another shoe that's going to drop here and, it, and it's a big one yeah it's, it's hard to imagine this going along without a, a criminal investigation but the other part of this too is that I don't think Doug Ford has made a decision that he hasn't reversed. I mean, we had that during the pandemic where um, it's exactly what Sean says, that if you don't have some basic principles, if you don't have a North Star, and if you don't fully believe in what you're doing, the political backlash that you get for any decision, because there always is political backlash, you just can't withstand it. Um, you know, the Harper government was pretty good at this, where they knew certain things they would do uh, would create a storm and they were ready to weather it. And I think before the pandemic, caveat is before the pandemic, but the Jason Kenney Alberta government also did a lot of very hard fiscal things and they battened down the hatches before they did them. Um, most governments do that and this government has not been able to do that. And I think this is a good lesson, I think, to partisans who uh, don't want to brook any criticism of their guys because I, I think when you don't have that criticism coming from inside, sometimes saying, hey, guys, we need to think about this. Um, you get governments like this. Um, and I think the other part of this, too, is that there's no opposition still in Ontario. Like There, there seems to be a real problem in this province where um, there's just actually no political competence on either side of the aisle. <laughs> Let me just jump in uh, before I hand it over to you, Rudyard. I think Stuart's being kind. I mean, frankly, the province of Ontario right now is governed by uh, the Toronto Sun, talk radio and whatever the premier hears when he's, you know, out and about in Etobicoke. That's, that, that's basically the, um, uh, those different voices have a disproportionate influence over what the government does based on what it understands Ontarians to want. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think the consequence of course, is you get this ratcheting back and forth on, on different issues. Um, the second thing I'd say, just to take up your point about um, about the weakness of the opposition, that is the most frustrating thing, right? The opportunity cost here, the counterfactual of what a competent government could have accomplished. I mean, Lord knows Ontario needs reform in a number of areas, uh, healthcare, education, deregulation, uh, you know, on and on and on. And I got to tell you guys, frankly, with the exception of the work that Monty McNaughton carried out with respect to um, apprenticeship and skilled trades um, and some of the changes he's made to modernize the labor code, I think you'd have a hard time um, coming up with a list of major accomplishments for um, Canada's largest provincial government that has had essentially oppositionless uh, run here for you know, now north of, of five years, um, which I guess just the last point I make before I turn it over to Rudyard. Um, I've said, I think on this podcast, if not elsewhere, that Monty McNaughton, you know, I think is the most interesting conservative politician in the country, um, in part because of the kind of policy entrepreneurial, entrepreneurialism that, that Rudyard referred to earlier. It turned off some conservatives because, of course, it looked and sounded a bit different than how conservatives have come to kind of conceptualize a traditional conservative policy agenda. 
you know, including in some cases expanding regulation um, to new and emerging uh, workplace arrangements like gig work. Um, but I hope he's not gone from politics for good. He's, I think, in his mid 40s. You know, I don't know. Could we see him stand up as a federal election candidate under a Pierre Polyev-led uh, uh, Conservative Party candidate? I, I'm not sure. I, I'd have no reason to believe that. Um, but I hope that he's not gone because I think he is an important voice pushing Canadian conservatives to um, modernize the way they think and talk about um, policy and politics. Yeah, my final comment on this is I, I think we got kind of excited about populism in Canada as uh, seemingly, at least in Ontario, an effective strategy to win an election. Give people what they want. Uh, let's remember that Ford government uh, has, uh, in terms of expenditures, um, outdone the previous win government uh, in, in uh, you know, total program spending across, uh, across its various uh, departments. Um, you know, populism is, it's intoxicating. It's, uh, it seems awfully democratic, doesn't it? I think the problem is Sean said to pick up, it's rudderless. It just, it doesn't have a set of anchors to kind of weather the inevitable political storms that come along and kind of chart a course to extend my analogy to some, some kind of North star, whatever that is, a smaller, more efficient government, better, you know, climate for, you know, businesses and uh, economic growth. And instead it gets lost in this miasma of bright new shiny objects yes. that pop up each and every day and capture the attention, the fixation of political leadership because they are seen as popular. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's government um, devoid of intellect and a theory of the case it's government by lobotomy and <laughs> I, I, I just think it's bad i think it's bad in terms of the public policy outcomes i think it's it's ultimately could be really bad in terms of the political outcome yes. you know uh we have the liberals going through a leadership race right now uh with um you know the potential here to put a candidate up that I think might look attractive to Ontario voters, given the, this perception of chaos. I guess that's my final point. It's this feeling of like chaos in the Ford government, resignations, radical reversals. Uh, you know, there's a lot of that in COVID. And I think people were willing to give the government a pass on that because it was an extraordinary crisis. But now those same patterns, the same dysfunctionality Yes. spiraling forward. Let's give you the last word on the show today, Sean, and, and then we'll wrap up the program. Yeah, I, I would just say that presently, what, Stuart, is it eight of 10 provinces are led by um, center-right parties or conservative parties? And, um, you know, I would say this, we, I think it's been the case for a long time, less so in recent years, but the kind of center of gravity of politics at the national level tilts in a center right direction. You know, even when Justin Trudeau was elected in 2015, yes, he commits to deficits, but he's trying to reassure voters that they're going to be small, they're going to be temporary, etc. Um, he's living to some extent within a kind of center right center of gravity. And that's not the case at the provincial level, you know, when you think about healthcare and education and so on. So conservative politicians at the provincial level who want to kind of tilt things 
in a center right direction are going to face resistance. They're going to face resistance from unions and, 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 and others. And that requires calculated risk choices, right? Like understanding the risks you're taking, understanding the dynamics involved, and then having a, a, a well-developed, sophisticated plan to execute. And I think when you do that, you can do big things. And, uh, and, but if you don't, if you uh, lead with your chin, <laughs> you're going to get punched. And I, I think that's been the problem with the Ford government. Um, too often it has um, lunged in the direction of potential major reform and then found itself um, hitting the mat pretty hard. And I don't know, guys, it's a far away from the next election, but I wonder today if it's going to be able to get back off the mat after, after the week it's had. Awesome, Sean. Uh, great analysis as always. Well, uh, let's put a pin in the show today for the 22nd of September, Friday. We'll do it all again next week. And for listeners that have made it to the end of the program, thank you so much for uh, sticking with us. Send us an email. Let us know what you thought of today's discussion. What do you want to see on this podcast? Stuart, what's the best email that people can use to contact us? Uh, well, you can email me at stuart at the hub.ca or uh, info at the hub.ca. You got the editor in chief's phone number email. <laughs> Stuart at the hub.ca. You got a column for Stuart, send it to him right now. You know, I tell you, I miss that about the National Post where they put your email at the bottom of every piece and you would get a lot of crazy emails every morning. So uh, we only uh, have uh, crystalline, precise, beautiful analysis from all of our hub listeners and readers. And we really appreciate that. So everybody have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.